Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, we are we're diving into, literally I think everyone in this room, especially if you're in men's Bible study, has heard me say a thousand times my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. And it's because when you really recognize your place in the bride of Christ and that we are with him, when he returns, it will change everything you do in your life day to day. It will radically change how you live. And we're in these last six chapters of the entire Bible. And we spent a few weeks on Babylon and what, what that was about, this false religious system that was rooted with Nimrod and Babel. And we'll eventually come back there to, to fulfill the doom of Babylon from chapter 18. But now we are opening up the return of the king, and we're going to take this chapter in at least three messages. So we're going to do verses 1 through 10 today, and then pick up from 11 on next week. And what we're going to do, I think this next slide has the outline. So today, part 1, verses 1 and 10, it's to rightly divide what we generically call the second coming of Jesus. And I think the church has used that term for so many decades. We have blurred that there are really a, there's really a, re, a second coming of Jesus where we meet him in the air and a third coming of Jesus where he steps foot on the earth. And that's what we're going to go through today is trying to rightly divide the word of truth to make sure that you understand your place in the bride of Christ and what your role is in chapter 19. Because if you are in Jesus in the church, you are riding back with him in this chapter. And when you understand the magnitude of that, it really will change everything that you do in your life day to day. So we're going to rightly divide that today. Then next week, we'll take 11 through 16 with the King of Kings and his marriage supper. And what is that about? What is the marriage supper of the Lamb all about? So we're going to take that as part two next week. That happens when he returns. The third part to close out the chapter will be when all of his enemies are destroyed and he establishes the kingdom. So we'll go into what is the millennium? What is it all about? Where is it spoken of in the Bible? It's all over the Bible. And we're going to talk a lot about the millennium. We're going to talk about how the lion and the lamb will, or the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. A kid can pick up a snake and not get bitten. If you live to 100, then you're still considered a child there's longevity restored. There's a lot of unique attributes of the millennium that if you read through Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah and all those Old Testament prophets, they, they disclose a lot about it. But that's going to be the third part is the establishment of the kingdom. So we do have, just bear with me, there are some extra slides today. I think Amy walked in and said, what in the world? This is a book that I just picked up off the table out there. So just, if you'll just hang with me for an extra 10 or 15 minutes today, I think it'll be fruitful and it's going to warrant, my goal is to give you a sense of urgency of where we are right now and where we are living in the church right now. And I, and I hope that you get away with this as he is coming to bring his bride home and you and I as the part of the bride of Christ must be prepared for that moment. And so We're going to go through these kind of quick, but stay with me. So verse 1, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia. So there's that worship word that Ryan was talking about earlier. Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. And so I want you to understand this is a crescendo of worship. The whole book of Revelation, we started this, whatever, the second weekend, I think in January, and we've been going through this verse by verse, but the entire book is a buildup of worship. It's a crescendo of worship of who is the king. 
So for true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. Remember, Babylon was responsible for the blood and the martyrdom of every single person in Jesus since the forming of the church. So you go back almost 2,000 years now, this false religious system, according to God's word in Revelation 17 and 18, has been responsible for the death of every single person in Jesus that died for him since then. So for true and righteous are his judgments. Truth. What is truth? You know, Pilate asked so sarcastically, but Jesus tells us what truth is in John 14, 6. Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the word of God. And so in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So Jesus is truth. Now, and hath avenged the blood. Oh, is it? What's going on here? The echo. Did you guys hear that? Uh, blood of it, the enemy is trying to disrupt here. The blood of his servants at her hand. So vengeance is mine, declares the Lord from Romans 12, 9. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. So there's not a condition on that vengeance from the Lord. I will repay, he says. And that's exactly what we just saw in Revelation 17 and 18 as he, as he poured out that judgment on this false antichrist beast system. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. That's Babylon. And the four and twenty elders, that's us, remember we're the twenty-four elders from Revelation 4 and 5, and the four beasts fell down, or the four living creatures that surround the throne of God. Remember they have the four faces, the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle, and they represent the four gospels of Jesus, and they are around the throne of God. So they fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Now it's interesting, this word omnipotent here in verse 6 it's used 10 times in the Greek New Testament, and everywhere else it's always translated as almighty except this one verse. And yes, indeed, God is omnipotent, but he is the almighty. So the Lord God, almighty, omnipotent, reigns. And yes, he does. Jesus is the only one that is almighty. So verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife that's us, if you're in the church right now. His wife hath made herself ready. You know, are you ready for the real marriage to commence? It's a challenge to everybody that's in the church today, that's in Jesus. Are you ready for the real marriage? Most of us in this room are married to someone, but the real marriage is yet to occur, and that is the marriage that we have with our bridegroom in Jesus. Have you prepared yourself to be called by your bridegroom to meet him in the air. That's the next thing. The next thing on his calendar for the church is the rapture to meet him in the air. So what is this marriage of the lamb all about? We're going to dig into it in a lot of detail next week, but just think about this. Where does it take place? Who's involved? You know, it's one of the, the key things that the Lord, remember the second time he gave us that vision to start the church Right here, the mission statement, to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride for Jesus' return. It's a bride walking in full authority in the power of Jesus that he called us to do, to be ready to meet him in the air. And so what I want you to do between now and next week, I'm going to give you some verses, I think, on the next slide maybe to read through, but study what is the marriage supper of the Lamb and what is it all about, because it's going to be the most exciting celebrations maybe you ever get to be a part of if you are in Jesus right now in the church age. So in verse 8, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. I want you to think about this. I didn't put this in the notes, but 
You are to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, as the bride of Christ. So 2 Timothy 2, 19 through 26, we have the verses before this, rightly dividing here in a little bit. But think about this. What does it mean to be clean and white, to be arrayed that way, waiting for Jesus? So nevertheless, this is 2 Timothy 2, 19 through 26. You can write this down in your notes. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Praise God, he does. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That is your, your role, is to depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. It sounds a lot like arrayed in fine linen. Flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid knowing they, that they do gender strifes. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. So in your house, back in verse 20, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. See, you are to purge anything out of your life that is not honoring to God. So all of us in this room are going through what the Bible refers to as the sanctification process. So you have been saved. You've been removed from the penalty of death. He removed that penalty. Now you have the ability to go through sanctification to be removed from the power of sin in your life. Okay, the penalty of sin is death. Once you're saved, you are justified. Then you go through the sanctification process where you are removing the power of sin in your life. At the rapture, he's going to remove you from the very presence of sin. So penalty, power, and presence. That's your walk right now. And we are in between the being justified and ultimately being glorified with Christ, and you are to be sanctified. So if you've got something in your life that you've been holding on to, you are to get rid of it. You are to, to be sanctified and push it out of your life, these earthen vessels, these vessels of wood and earth that are not honoring to God. Get them out so that you can be arrayed in clean, white, fine linen, the righteousness of the saints to be an unashamed bride ready to meet him in the air because he's going to call you soon. He's going to call all of us soon. And he has said unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. It's just like what Daniel went through. Remember this angel's delivering a message and Daniel's making the mistake of worshiping the messenger instead of the king. See that thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Do not let anyone belittle your passion to study prophecy. It is the entire word of God is prophetic in some sense. But right here is in verse 10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Every prophecy in the Bible has to do with Jesus somehow. It's just a matter of how does it connect. And that's a really fruitful study to go through. But who's called to the marriage supper of the Lamb? These are all questions I want you to think about as we prepare for next week. Who's called to the marriage supper? We will study that next week in a lot of detail. But read Matthew 22, 1 through 14 to understand some, some really unique details about the marriage supper. John the Baptist called himself a friend of the bridegroom. This is deliberate. This is, this is an intentional word from the Holy Spirit, separate from the bride. So John 3, verse 29, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, 
rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This is my joy, therefore fulfilled. And so that's John the Baptist saying he's calling himself a friend of the bridegroom. He's knowing the difference. Remember, Jesus said the law and the prophets were until John. And what did he mean by that? It means that the Old Testament, that covenant, closed with John the Baptist. He was the closing of the Old, the Old Testament. It didn't end in Malachi. John, John the Baptist closed it. And so they have a different relationship, and we're going to talk about this next week. When are the Old Testament saints resurrected? Well, Job and Daniel seem to imply that they are resurrected when Jesus steps foot on the mountain in Zechariah. We're going to look at that next week. The church has a totally different relationship with the Lord. The Holy Spirit indwells us. It does not come and go like it did in the Old Testament. And praise God it doesn't because we, I think we need it today, more than, maybe more than ever. But if you, if you don't recognize what John is saying here, you'll be a little confused on who's at the marriage supper and what is your role in it as the bride of Christ and we have got to understand that, because if you understand that, that you are to be arrayed, sanctified in righteous apparel for Jesus as his bride, and he is our bridegroom, again, it changes everything for how you live. And so this is the verse, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he doth judge and make war. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Who declared war on Satan? It is God. I will put enmity between the seed of the woman. That's a title of Jesus Christ, predicting the virgin birth, and the seed of the serpent. So God declares war, and Jesus makes that war. All judgment has been appointed from the Father to the Son. And this, this will be the moment... When you, when, we, when you and I are raptured and we are sitting in heaven for however long all of these events from Revelation 4 verse 1 on unfold, this is the moment where we come back with him. And we're going to study this in a lot of detail next week. But seeing heaven opened, what does that even mean? Heaven's opening. Well, God is going to open heaven to call us home because he's going to descend from heaven with a shout. And we're going to go and meet him up there. And not to, well, not to get in it too much. We're going to get into it in detail next week. But the, the physics behind it are just incredible. So, yes, John Eric's opening the dimensions with his, with his hands. I can't do it because I have to hold a microphone now. So, but you, you, when you understand the three and a half dimensions that we live in, and quantum physics knows that there are at least six and a half others. See, it's three and a half because it's three spatial and a half dimension at a time. You can go forward and look back, but you can't move backward and, and look forward. So you can only move in one direction. And not, I know it's, it's yes, boggled, mind-blowing. But, but Jesus is going to open these, in, these other dimensions. So remember in his resurrected body, he could come in and out of a room without going through a door. He would appear. He, he dined. He ate. You and I are going to have that ability in our resurrected bodies. It's exactly what Corinthians talks about when we shall see him as he is. So you're no longer going to see a three-dimensional representation of who Jesus Christ is. You're going to see him for who he is. And when we get to this point, he is going to be sitting on his white horse with eyes of fire ready to make war. And you and I are going to be with him. And one of my dear friends had a, had a vision of this right when he got saved. He was taken to this moment for three seconds. And I know he will not mind me sharing this with you. It was about 30 years ago now. But, and he had no idea. He had just been saved. And he had no idea what this was about, what Revelation 19 was about. But second one, he was on a white horse. And we were all with him in this horseshoe shape. And it was stacked. Because remember, we're not in three dimensions anymore. So it was stacked so that every eye could see Jesus. And in the middle of the horseshoe, there was Jesus, the rider on the white horse, who's going to make war. With all of this that's going on, he's going to come back to make war with them. And that was second one. Second two was those interdimensional gateways were open. Jesus opened the space-time continuum, and we came down with him. That fabric of space, you can't even imagine the sound of it. You think it's loud when a jet flies over and breaks the sound barrier. 
Imagine when Jesus opens up this barrier, the sound that's going to radiate around the globe. It'll be ear-piercing. It'll be deafening. And second, two, he split that open, and we all were riding down with him as the church, as the bride of Christ, because that's our role in this. Second, three, we were all sitting on the mount with him in Jerusalem, and he went forward to make war, and then he was gone. And my buddy, he had no idea what it was, so he went to his pastor. He had just become a Christian, and, and his pastor asked him, have you ever read Revelation 19? He said, no, I haven't. He's like, well, that's what you just were a part of, and he, so he went and read it. But that is the ultimate hope. I think if you are in Jesus, this is the ultimate hope, that a righteous king is going to come back and rule and to reign, that these Luciferian leaders around the world and everything Satan is doing right now that the Lord is allowing, it will not go on forever. Jesus is not going to sit by idly and let it happen forever. And so he's going to come back and make war. So what I want to do is, is rightly divide what we generically call the return of Jesus. Is This is important. We studied this seven months ago when we got into Revelation chapter 4. But what I want you to understand is that the vast majority of the Bible goes in and talks about Jesus' return, but it's two different events. And the church has blurred this for a long time, where we generically say the second coming of Jesus. And, and you don't really know what that means. Are you talking about the rapture, or are you talking about his return to rule and to reign? And so we've got to rightly divide the word of truth. And in order to do that, we have to take God at his word. We have to take him serious, that he says exactly what he means. And he declares that three times in his word, not to add or take away from the word of God. In Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add unto the word which I commanded you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it. Deuteronomy 12.32, what things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shall not add thereto or diminish from it. And then Revelation 22, for I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. I don't want to be a part of that. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. Again, I don't want to be a part of that. So God takes his word very, very serious. You are not to add to it or take away from it. You are to, it's his word. We are not to modify it in any way. And it's exactly why Hosea 4.6 says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And it's because the church, for all of my life for sure, has, been, has, not, has not deeply studied the word of God. It has weakened the body of Christ because you don't understand your place in this program. You don't understand your role and that you have a responsibility to the king to live for him. In Hosea 4.6, that's exactly what it's about. 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Again, you are not to be ashamed when you understand the word of God and you're living for Jesus. It is to live as an unashamed bride for him, rightly dividing the word of truth. And again, how did Eve fall? Remember, God said, don't eat of the tree. The serpent comes and she says, he said, don't eat of it or touch it. That's never what God said. He said, don't eat of it. So she added to his word and thus all of us fell with her, all of humanity. And it started this entire thing. What about King Zedekiah? You had Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophesying to him. One said, you'll never see Babylon. The other one said, you're going to die in Babylon. Well, he just laughed at him and said, you guys can't even get your story straight. Am I going to not see it or am I going to die there? Well, both were true because Nebuchadnezzar came and put out his eyes and drug him off to Babylon where he died. And so both of them were true. And there's all the verses on the bottom of the slide to look through that. But he didn't take God's word serious. And both were true. So with some of that background, there are, there are two discourses that Jesus gives in the Gospels about his return. Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And Jesus gives us a list of signs in those that will accompany his return to the earth to rule and reign. And they line up exactly with Revelation 6. So a lot of times we refer to them as the Olivet Discourse, if you've ever heard that phrase before. And these grouping of signs are the same in both chapters, but they're not necessarily the same discussion. 
And one of the things that we've done is really read those a lot and think, well, Jesus is giving the same discourse in these, all these chapters, and it's not. Jesus begins both discussions with the same command to not be deceived. So do not be deceived. Do not water down his word. Don't add to it or take away from it. Matthew 24, 4 and Luke 21, 8. So the discussions are in actually different locations. Matthew 24, 3, he sits upon the Mount of Olives. In Luke 21, it was in the daytime and he was teaching in the temple. So these are two different, two different events that he is giving these signs to. And when you realize that, it all makes sense on what he's doing and who he's talking to. There's a different emphasis by Jesus in these two accounts. Luke is written to the Gentile church. That's us. Matthew is written to the Jewish remnant that is, becomes a believer in Jesus during the tribulation. Again, remember, it's the time of Jacob's trouble. It's, uh, the focus is on Israel. And when you look at these signs, here's the list that Jesus gives us. There's false Christ, wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, it's, there's a rapture spoken of, and the abomination of desolation, which is that technical event from Daniel 9 that at the midpoint in the tribulation, the Antichrist goes into the Holy of Holies and declares himself to be God. And it's from that point on, the back half of that seven-year period, that Jesus calls it the Great Tribulation. Again, Yes, the whole time, all the seven-year period is turbulent and tribulation, but he defines the back half specifically as the great tribulation. So you get in Revelation 6, and it's amazing how the seals line up exactly with what he talks about. There's a false Christ in Revelation 6. That's the first one. There's wars in the second one, the red horse. There's famines. We, went up, we spent two weeks on that back in chapter 6. That's the black horse, pestilences as the fourth seal. There's earthquakes right after that. There's a rapture that's prior in the book, and then the abomination and desolation obviously happens later in the book. See, Luke 21, Jesus says, but before all of these, and he's giving instructions to his believers that are in Jerusalem in 70 AD when the temple's destroyed. In Matthew 24, he says, after these things, and he has all these instructions for the Jews to Flee to the mountains. Don't, don't come down off the rooftop. Gather supplies. Hide. You flee to the wilderness, and you go now. In Luke, he never gives the church instructions to do that because we don't have to do that. In Luke 21, 28, when you see these things begin to come to pass, look up, for your redemption draws nigh. In other words, look up. You're going to come home soon. The rapture is going to happen. And that's his commitment to his bride, that's us. We are the bride. And so it's before these that we get to go home. It's after these that he gives instructions to the Jews to, on how to survive, basically, during that time from Revelation 6-1 on. So the anticipation of Jesus' return, it's really prevailed throughout church history. You know, all through the Gospels, they were looking for him to come back already. In fact, 2 Thessalonians was written to the church who thought they had missed the rapture. There was, a, there was a forgery going around, and it's amazing. You can read that right at the beginning of 2 Thessalonians, but they thought they missed it. And so the Holy Spirit's correcting them, and that's what 2 Thessalonians is all about, is about the rapture, when can the Antichrist rise to power, when the restraining Holy Spirit's removed, etc. And Jesus is clear to us as the church from Luke 19 that we are to occupy until he comes. You know, you can't occupy if we're running for our lives trying to flee the Antichrist and the beast system. So when you understand, when you rightly divide from 2 Timothy 2.15, what is going on, the whole picture becomes clear that we are to be an unashamed bride living for him. In Luke 17, I love this picture. I tell you that in the night there shall be two men in one bed. One shall be taken, the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together. The one shall be taken, the other, two le the other left. Two men shall be in the field. The one shall be taken, and the other left. Jesus is talking about the rapture, but you have morning, noon, and night in this verse. Morning was when they would grind or I'm sorry, when they would make the harvest in the field, they would grind in the afternoon to prepare for the next day, and the night's obviously sleeping. So it's a testament of a round earth. 
which is really cool. So it's a testament of a round earth that there's morning, noon, and night at the same time, and something is happening at once in each of those locations. So the Greek word from where we get the rapture is, is derived from the word harpazo. It means to be caught up. It's translated caught up all over the Bible. And in the Latin translation of this verse, it's used the word rapturo back in 1 Thessalonians 4 is where you get this. It means to snatch away or take away by force, okay, to be translated, to be caught up. Elsewhere, it's used to describe how the Spirit caught up Philip near Gaza and brought him to Azotus. That's in Acts 8. It describes Paul's experience of being caught up into the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. The same word used in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is used to indicate an actual removal of people from the earth. And in fact, there are seven different raptures in the Bible. Enoch, Elijah, Jesus, Philip, Paul, the body of Christ, and then John in Revelation 4.1, which is amazing. It's the seven, again, it's always the number of completion on, what, on behalf of what God does for man. And so and God's going to do this for his bride, bring, bring us home. So the rapture before the wrath, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up or raptured, harpazo, there's the word, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Praise God. Cannot wait for that as the bride of Christ. First Thessalonians 5, 9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus. So what's happening? Remember all the way back in Revelation 6? The people on the earth even say, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? See, they're even admitting that it's the wrath of God that's unfolding. And these promises throughout the scripture are referred to as our blessed hope in Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So another more subtle hint, think back to Revelation 1, verse 20. Remember where the seven lampstands were on the earth with Jesus, and they represented the completed church? Well, in Revelation 4, after the rapture in chapter 4, verse 5, they're in the throne room of the universe. So even in that subtlety, you have the hint of where our role is, is in this as the bride of Christ. Okay, the 24 elders, Revelation 4 and 5, that's us. We are a royal priesthood from 1 Peter 2.9, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. In chapter 1, verse 6, and hath made us kings and priests. See, don't discount the 24 elders we declare in chapter 5 that he's redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And look at that. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests. And when you understand what it means to be a king and a priest to Jesus, again, it changes the way in which you live. Because there were only three people in the entire Bible that are kings and priests. Melchizedek was the priest of Salem, the king and a priest from Salem or Jerusalem. And Abraham gave him tithes after the war. But we know from Psalms and Hebrews that Jesus, Melchizedek, was a foreshadowing of a type of the priesthood we would have with Jesus. And a never-ending priesthood, a once-and-for-all priesthood. He is our high priest, and Jesus is obviously our king from the line of the tribe of Judah. So he is a king and a priest. Well, then, that doesn't happen again until the church. Because all through the Old Testament... God says kings were to come through the, the tribe of Judah, priests through the tribe of Levi, and they were never to commingle. And a few of them tried, and God really corrected them. You're not to do that. That is saved for a specific group of people, my bride, the bride of Christ. So you have a unique relationship with God that I think none of us, it'll t it will probably spend an eternity just trying to figure out what that even means. But you have a special relationship. You are a co-heir with Jesus. He is the heir of all things. We have been made co-heirs with him. So expecting Jesus' return, I thought we could flip through a paper copy of the Bible and read these one by one and, and fumble around. No, I'm kidding. There's, there's, when, you, when you realize the entire Bible speaks of Jesus' return, 
and that it should be, we should ex- be expecting it at any moment. Okay, this is just a small sampling. This is not even the complete list. But I wanted to read one of these to you real fast because it is, this is important. So Acts 3, verse 20, I think it's on that list up there. If it's not, I know it's on the return to power one. Acts 3, write this in your notes too. Acts 3, 20 and 21. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. If you are not familiar with your Old Testament, that term will mean nothing to you. The times of restitution of all things. It's a jubilee term. It's a, in the Old Testament, what they would do, you'd have seven years, and then seven groupings of seven, you had 49 years, and the 50th year was a year of jubilee. And see, what you did with the land, you would own some land, you would maybe lease it to someone. Well, in the jubilee year, it would return back to you. The leases would be canceled. All debts were forgiven on the jubilee year. All slaves were set free in the Old Testament on the jubilee year. And it was the time of the restitution of all things. And the Holy Spirit is using it here in Acts 3, speaking of the return of Jesus from Revelation 19. Because what happens when he returns? It is the time of restitution of all things. The land will go back to its rightful owner, which is Israel, from the river Nile until the river Euphrates from Genesis 15. All slaves are set free when Jesus returns. All debts are forgiven. I don't think you're going to come back and Jesus is going to say, hey, you still had some left on that mortgage uh, back in Oklahoma City. I need you to maybe take care of that and work a little harder. No, it's every debt is forgiven. All slaves are set free and all land goes back to its rightful owner. That's exactly what happens when Jesus returns. It's a jubilee year implication. It's the time of restitution of all things whom the heaven must receive until. So there's a specific time that this restitution starts, and that's when he returns to the earth. But we're to expect him at any moment. So when you really divide these two, rightly divide these two things, it can kind of start to blur together unless you realize there's two different events going on here. There's the rapture, and there's some verses referencing there for you. And that's just a small sampling. You could find these all over the Bible. But I picked out three from the Old Testament that I just loved that we can read. Psalms 27, 5. For in the time of trouble, that's what Jeremiah calls the tribulation, he shall hide me in his pavilion in the secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. That rock is none other than Jesus Christ. Psalms 31. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. That's us. We are secretly held in a pavilion. In fact, either in, even in Psalms 2, when the enemies declare war on the Lamb after Revelation 19, they blaspheming him and those in heaven. That's us. Isaiah 26, 20, come my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself as it were for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. See, we get to go home and hide there with Jesus while all of this happens. And then we are with him coming out of our closet with the bridegroom. Okay, the second, so that's the first event. The second coming of Jesus is the return in power. And this is all over the Bible. I didn't even include verses from Zechariah, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Malachi. You could go, every single book of the Old Testament speaks of this somewhere. Proverbs, Lamentations, it's all over there. Ecclesiastes mentions it. Job mentions it. I didn't even include all of those. This is a small sampling. We're going to unpack a lot of these next week and look at Job and Zechariah and all of these of him coming back in power. But look at 1 Chronicles 16.33. Then the trees of the wood shall rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. 
Psalms 96, let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. For he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. See, he didn't do that the first time. None of this has been fulfilled. He came to be a suffering servant to die for us, to not even speak a word about it. Remember, Pilate even asks him, are you not going to say anything to defend yourself? He was fulfilling a prophecy in the Old Testament that he would utter not a word during those illegal trials, during the Passion Week. He hasn't judged yet. Isaiah 26, 21, For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood. Remember, and we talked about this with Mystery Babylon, that she is responsible for the blood of all the saints of Jesus. And just like with Cain and Abel, where is thy brother? His blood cries to me from the earth. Okay, the earth is no longer going to disclose her blood. It's tr- it, the enemy tries to hide the blood of the martyrs because it cries to Jesus for vengeance and shall no more cover her slain. So when you look at these two events, the rapture and the return of power, there's translation of believers, translated saints go to heaven. Earth is not judged yet. It's imminent at any moment. It's predicted all through the Old Testament. It's believers only. It's before the day of the Lord, before the indignation and wrath, and we meet him in the air. Okay, you, you take the return in power. It's, there's no translation involved. Translated saints return to earth. We are with him when he comes back. Earth is judged. It follows a definite predicted signs. It's predicted all in the Old Testament. We're going to unpack a lot of those next week. Affects all men on the earth. Concludes the day of the Lord. It's before the establishment of the kingdom. In Daniel 12, when Jesus returns to earth, there's a 75-day period that the sheep and goat judgment from Matthew 25 occurs. There's where the nations are judged based on how they treated Israel during that seven-year tribulation. When you think about what happens, we are with him, we ride to earth, he conquers his enemies, he goes to restore, to get the remnant from the rock city Petra in the wilderness down in Jordan. He comes back, he steps foot on the Mount of Olives, it cleaves and it creates a gigantic valley where the new temple, the millennial temple, will have water coming out of it to worship or to nurture the entire earth. There's a 75-day period where he establishes the kingdom, and you and I have roles and responsibilities that we will be dispatched to during that time. The sheep and goat judgment, there's so much about what happens at that point that, frankly, we just haven't studied it enough. But we're going to lay out all of those events starting next week. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's someone that gets into the marriage supper that's not to be invited, and so Jesus kicks them out of the wedding celebration, which is interesting when you think about that from Matthew 24. So I I just want you to realize there's more, you have more to look forward to than I think anyone in this room really appreciates, myself included. We, everything, all of our promises in Jesus are yet future. He has saved us, yes. He is with us right now. We are living for him. But our promise to rule and to reign with him and to be an unashamed bride with him, that's all in the millennium. He's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. Earth, the atmosphere itself is going to change physically. We're going to talk about that from Isaiah. He's going to change and go back to something. It could be a universal climate. I'm not sure. Uh, But we'll, we'll make some speculations. So unconditional promise of a home. So that new city, this is one of the... One of the things when Jesus gave us the name for the church, remember he said everything this church does will be to further build that new city, the new Jerusalem that's the forever home of the bride of Christ. And it's a promise Jesus made us in John 14. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. He's been preparing this place for you for almost 2,000 years. That's how glorious it is. He spoke the world and the universe into existence. But for his bride, he is crafting a home, a forever home, for more than 2,000 years for you. You can't even imagine how magnificent it will be. He, he could have just spoken and be done, but he's been working on it. 
He's been preparing this room edition. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. So how many times does he say you in this? Eight times. It's the number of new beginnings. It is our new beginning in Jesus because he went to go prepare that place for us. It's something that we should all really look forward to. And when you think about the Jewish wedding, we as the bride of Christ, we, have, we alone have the right to sit with Jesus on a white horse in heaven and return with him. And the whole thing models the Jewish wedding. You have the ketubah, the payment of the purchase price, the bride is set apart, sanctified like we are right now. The bridegroom departs to the father's house. He then prepares a room addition. And the bride, we are to prepare at any moment for the imminent return of the bridegroom. So in the Jewish Galilean wedding, the bride never knew when the bridegroom would come through the city and blow a trumpet like 1 Thessalonians 4. And the bride would, should be ready, clean and ready in white apparel, ready for the wedding. And it was a surprise gathering. And then there was the hoopah or the wedding. And all of this is modeled in the New Testament. The covenant's established none other than Jesus himself. The purchase price was him. The bride is set apart. We are to be sanctified for him. We're reminded of the covenant. The bridegroom left for the father's house. And then there's a surprise gathering, which is the rapture, where he blows the trumpet and we get to rise up. Even in, that, even in the wedding ceremony, the company with Jesus, or with the bridegroom, I should say, when the trumpet was blown, they would set the bride on this platform and everybody would lift her up to go to the marriage supper, which is so cool because that's exactly what we get to do. We get caught up in heaven to meet him there. So we have the right, we have the right to be with Jesus because we are the bride of Christ. It's a relationship that he's reserved for the church. And anyone is welcome to be a part of it. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are in it. So I hope that you understand that this time about living for Jesus, it's not the gray time is over of living one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. You know, New City, I really hope, and I, somebody told me this, they're out traveling, I won't mention who it is, but what she said was, at New City, you know, at all these other churches we attended our whole lives, it was, it was, we spent all week preparing on Sunday, and New City, I feel like, is preparing us on Sunday for Monday through Saturday. And I hope that is what you're getting out of this, that my heart is that you have an absolute passion and urgency to study the Word of God and to understand your relationship and authority with Jesus. It is unlimited. See, the whole tribulation can't even occur with the church on earth because we would just bind that spirit in the name of Jesus and it'd be over before it began. It'd be done. But that's one of the reasons he's got to bring us home because he's going to war and he brings his ambassadors home first before that. He makes war. And everything, we're going to look at Hebrews next time, where everything you see around you is a shadow of a much larger reality. Everything. The true reality is in heaven. See, if you took a, a string and you cut it in half and you got rid of half of it, you would think you could do that forever, but quantum physics now knows there's a Planck limit at 10 to the negative 33rd where everything just disappears. It's 10 to the negative 33rd centimeters. And, and that's exactly what Hebrews talks about. And we're gonna, we're gonna look at that next time. It's an amazing physics statement in the book of Hebrews. So every atom is built up of these other, what they call quantas, these little Planck limits. Uh, but that it's just a shadow. Everything you see around you is a shadow right now of the true eternal reality, everything. And physics has proven that. Modern physics has proven what the Bible has said for 6,000 years. And so it's incredible when you really understand that we need to be about the Father's business because you are about to experience something maybe in our lifetime that every generation before us has looked to experience, which is to meet him in the air. Every generation before us has wanted to be them, but we may have that privilege. And I, I'm not, nobody here is setting dates or anything, but just understand that you are closer today than you were yesterday. And tomorrow you're gonna be closer. At lunch, you're closer than you were here. And so we gotta get in the word of God. 
And to build your faith in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's Jesus. That's what it is. Why is it important? For without faith, it's impossible to please him. So you can't please him as his bride unless you get faith. So how do you get it? Romans 10.17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And then the namesake for our men's Bible study that's here every Friday morning at 6.30, how often do you go and try to build your faith? Well, Acts 17.11, search the scriptures daily. So it's not a once a week thing. It's not an every Sunday thing. It's not a once a month thing. You are to exercise that spiritual muscle daily to get into the word of God and to build your faith to be ready to meet Jesus. And so you need the Holy Spirit to give you understanding of the word of God. And to get that, it's really simple. So if you're watching this somewhere around the world and you haven't accepted Jesus, it's it's the easiest thing you'll ever do and the most fulfilling. It's Romans 10, 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You can make sure that you have your place in that army that rides back with Jesus. You just have to get on your knees and cry out to him exactly like the thief on the cross did. He did nothing else afterwards. He just acknowledged in his heart and with his mouth that Jesus was king and he was saved. That's it. He didn't have to do anything with it. You know, the times of the restitution of all things, the Lord's really been laying heavy on my heart that, you know, everything that's going on in the world right now, again, we've mentioned this a few times in here, but it's, it's the enemy trying to usher in the beast system before it's time and trying to usher it in with the church still here. And that's why there's so much tension right now in the world because it's not time. The Lord has not brought us home. So it's not time for the Antichrist to be revealed. It's not time for a one world government. It's not time to need something to buy, sell, or trade. It's not that time. That's why there's so much tension going on. You know, the World Economic Forum, they even call it the Great Reset, right? The Great Reset, it's a false reset. That reset is Acts 3, 20 and 21. It's the time of restitution of all things. There will be a great reset, make no doubt. But that reset comes when the King of Kings steps foot on the earth and establishes his kingdom with us as his bride. So if you are not in Jesus, I am suggesting and imploring with you that you get in it now and that you do not wait because we are going to go home at some point and the Lord is going to give the world exactly what they want which is a world without his church. And he's going to give it to them. And there's a lot going on. But if you need help, I think on the next slide, we've got the, the email address. If you need anything, that's our email address right now. We're working on getting some things updated with IT stuff. So that may change here soon. But if you have prayer requests, if, you need, if you've got questions on salvation, if you need help fighting something in your life, you know, reach out to us. We're here to help. We've got a heart to build an unashamed bride to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride for Jesus. And that's what it's all about right now. So with that, I'm going to close us in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, I thank you that we have the esteemed privilege to be on the white horse with you in Revelation 19. And Lord, as we dive in in these weeks ahead on what is it about to come home to you and what will it be about to return with you Lord, I just pray that you would give every single person a sense of urgency in living for you in all things, to be a, a cleansed, sanctified, unashamed bride, to get rid of any earth or wood vessel in their house that is not supposed to be there, that is dishonoring to you. Let them set it aside and submit it and lay it at the throne room of the universe and cast it at your feet because you have promised to take that burden off of them. And so it's in your strength, Lord Jesus, that we pray all of these things and we give you all of the praise and the glory, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.